stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, happy Monday, Chet Nation. Good morning. Welcome to the program. My name is Rob Breckenridge, your host today and for the next two weeks here on 630 Chet. And look, I know a lot of folks are wondering what's to come of this uh, nine to noon slot. Of course, the uh, former host and uh, she hung up the microphone uh, and the headphones on Friday. And so what comes next? Uh, All I can say at this point, folks, is stay tuned. Now, as you may know, I mean, uh, I currently have an afternoon show uh, on our affiliate 770 CHQR in Calgary. You may be often hear me in the afternoons uh, helping to fill in when uh, Jalen Nye is away. You may also know that uh, I did get my start uh, in six th- at 6.30 check. I grew up in Edmonton, uh, learned uh, from the great Bob Layton, actually even proposed to my wife on uh, the 6.30 Chet Airwaves, believe it or not, back in uh, 1999, I guess that was. Uh, so I will be your host uh, for the next couple of weeks. And as for what comes after that, well, like I say, uh, stay tuned. So, in the meantime, we have got a lot of ground to cover on the program today. 780-496-0063. Certainly looking to hear from you today. And like I say, a lot to talk about. Uh, We will touch on uh, some of the events from the weekend as it pertains to church services and protests. Of course, an Edmonton area pastor in the Remand Center for openly defying court injunctions regarding his church services. Even though the pastor wasn't there, that particular church was packed again yesterday. So it's not just the pastor, clearly, that's part of the problem here. But make no mistake, this is a problem, folks. It is. You know, we're trying our best to to navigate the situation we're in so we can come up better on the other side. Uh, I think if some individuals and groups and organizations decide that, you know, we're checking up, we're not following the rules, they don't apply to us anymore, we're going to slide backward. And those who are doing the right thing are the ones who are going to suffer. So I think we need to be smarter here. And this idea of packing churches to make a political point does not seem smart. It's the opposite of that. And frankly, it's selfish too. So we'll get into that on the program today. Today is also the day that the new rules for returning travelers, both those returning via land crossing, those returning via air, kick in. Now, it's not exactly the same how it's going to work, depending if you're arriving by air or by land. But the new rules do take effect uh, today. We'll talk about that. Also on the program this morning, we're going to hear from Alberta's uh, labor minister. We'll talk about uh, the province finally signing on to the federal program. And it's a matching program. So about um, three quarters comes from the feds, a quarter of it comes from from the province uh, to add a a bonus or a wage top up to frontline essential workers. But there's been some some criticism over uh, the province's definition uh, of essential or critical workers, who's eligible for this, who isn't. So we'll clarify all of that with the labor minister. He's going to join us coming up after 9.30. Later on today, Edmonton physician and professor of the University of Alberta, Dr. Lewis Francis Cuddy. He's got a new book called Hardwired, How Our Instincts to be Healthy Are Making Us Sick. We're going to talk about single-event sports betting. Uh, the House of Commons now a step closer to finally legalizing single-event sports betting. More on that later on today. So uh, Supreme Court justices be bilingual? This has come up before, but the federal government looks to be moving to enshrine that requirement. So what are the implications on the legal system? 
Don't we want the best legal minds on the Supreme Court? Documents can be translated. Testimony can be translated. We'll get into that today. And also a conversation at 10 o'clock this morning. Looking forward to this. Cold War historian Tom Nichols joins us. We're going to talk about some documents that came to light last week showing just how close the world came to full-on war in 1983. The Soviet Union was really convinced that a NATO exercise was not an exercise. And we learned a little bit more last week at how close we came to war. We'll talk about that up to 10 o'clock. So plenty to get to on the program today. And looking forward to the conversation today and over the next couple of weeks. All right, out of the gate here this morning. Uh, and as you know, there's been an ongoing conversation uh, in this time slot and elsewhere about the uh, mayoral election uh, later this year. And of course, as Don Iveson has decided not to run again, it's a wide open race. And uh, plenty of folks, uh, I think, are, are eager and interested uh, to throw their hats into the ring. And so we've had some conversations with some of those candidates. Let me uh, bring another into the conversation here this morning. Diana Steele is president of the Crestwood Community League and is a declared candidate now to be the next mayor of the city of Edmonton. She joins us on the line here this morning. Diana, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Welcome to the program. Good morning, Rob, and welcome to your first day on the, uh, on the show. Well, I appreciate that and appreciate you making some time for us here today. So a lot, lot to talk about, obviously, but let, let's begin with, you know, the question of, of why. Why you, you want to be the next mayor of Edmonton and, and why Edmonton voters should, uh, should consider you? Well, my intention to run comes based out of conversations that I've been having over the past couple of years, just about um, the possibility of our system becoming partisan, which we're trying to avoid. We do know, or we've been hearing rumors that um, certain political parties are going to plant candidates into the election. And um, I don't want that to happen. So that's why I've decided to put my hat in the ring. Well, expand on that. What, what, what are you hoping to avoid here? Or, or what impact do you think that, that running can have then on that? Well, I think that municipal politics is really, or, or running the city is, is providing basic services, right? So, I mean, we're talking about things like transportation and making sure that the streets are cleared of snow. So do we really need uh, party affiliations to make those kinds of decisions or do we need to make those decisions based on the greatest ideas that we can come up with? Um, And a lot of times we can see that decisions are typically made, especially in provincial or uh, federal politics. Those decisions are typically made because it is a conservative point of view or a liberal point of view. And I, I don't think that belongs in any city decision at all. All right. So why the mayor's chair then? Um, well, I mean, I, I thought about running for Ward 1 councillor. But as I said, there was a particular individual. There were several, but one in particular who I was trying to convince to run for mayor. And they decided not to. And I sort of went into a bit of panic mode. <laughs> well, if you're not going to do it, who will? <laughs> So that's when I said, well, okay, then I'm I'm going to take a run at this. Someone has to stop this. So why not me? Right. And um, I mean, you have a, a business background, a volunteer background, but uh, not necessarily political background. Did you see that as, as a, an advantage or a drawback when it comes to municipal politics? Well, one of the things I, I'm hearing a lot from um, the citizens in Edmonton, even political analysts are saying, 
you know, they're tired of the same old, same old. So if we're tired of it, then maybe Edmonton is ready to elect someone who doesn't have a political background and someone who is going to come at every decision a little bit differently. I don't have um, any, I have no political connections at all. Um, You know, everything I, every decision that I make is based on the best interests of the city of Edmonton. I have no future political goals. I don't, I don't want to be the mayor so that I can one day run as the premier. Um, You know, these are just, this, I'm simply doing it because I love Edmonton and I want to see the best decisions being made for our city. So I think having no political background is a good, is a good idea. Okay, uh, fair enough. What, what do you see then as as kind of the big challenges, right? When when you look at everything Edmonton's dealing with the, at the moment, what stands out to you as the priorities? What what do what do the priorities of the next mayor need to be? Well, obviously, because we're in a pandemic, um, economic recovery is is the biggest challenge we're facing right now. Um, we're seeing businesses that are closing and will continue to close over the next year, potentially, if not longer. We need to live through that in the meantime. And then once we get through the pandemic, we have to be able to rebuild, but we're rebuilding at a time when the entire world is rebuilding. And we have to be uh, extremely innovative and creative. We have to have our best people putting their foot forward essentially to take risks. Some people are gonna have to start businesses when um, it's a risky time to start a business, but we need that, we need those types of ideas in order to continue moving forward. Now, let me also ask you about this, and, and this was from, uh, I think, a few weeks ago, and, and I'll mm-hmm. give you a chance to address this situation, right, because yeah. there had been some calls uh, for you to, to resign as Community League president and yes. uh, some concerns that were raised, and I know you had an opportunity to, to address those, to yes. have some conversations. So w- what do people need to know about this situation? Well, I'm certainly not the first president to run um, uh, for any sort of political position while continuing to remain as uh, part of a board. So this isn't new. This has been happening for a long time. Um, You know, my board was given the opportunity. I did offer to resign. They were given the opportunity to let me go. (laughs) And they kindly asked me to stay, um, which I hope speaks to, you know, my boy, my passion for Crestwood, obviously, but B, just my dedication to volunteerism and helping people out so um yeah i mean i want to i don't want to abandon my community just because i have goals to further myself here um i i'm not a fan of saying well i'd like to do something bigger and better so i'm going to leave you guys alone now i can continue to do the job while i run for mayor at the same time all right. And as you say, I mean, we are, are still in a, a pandemic. Uh, I know it's, mm-hmm. it's certainly affecting how candidates are interacting with voters, what campaigning looks like. Uh, how, how do you approach that then uh, in the weeks and months ahead here? Uh, you know, there have been a lot of people who are trying to figure this out right now because I, I'm not going to have a campaign office. Certainly with the new variant showing up as well, I'm just not willing to put anybody at risk. So everything we do will be done virtually or meeting um, individuals for, for quick coffees or going for walks, that kind of thing. Lots of social media, um, obviously, possibly doing some phone outs. I, I, you know, the, it, it is going to be, the campaigning is going to look very different for all of the candidates. But I think it's a, a great way to um, maybe change the game a little bit too. Maybe perhaps, you know, we don't have to spend as much money. I've heard rumors that people often spend four for uh, $500,000 running a campaign, do we really need to spend that kind of money moving forward? Are we able to run a campaign on way less than that? And I think if you're not 
um, you know, using a brick and mortar building and spending thousands of dollars a month at, on paying for rent, then that's certainly one way to uh, save a bunch of money. And I am typically a, a fiscally conservative individual, and I would like to be able to show the city of Edmonton that, you know, I plan on running a fiscally conservative campaign, and that's how I intend on, on running the city as well. So. All right. We'll look forward to hearing more from you in the uh, weeks and months ahead. More at uh, dianasteel.ca, and that's uh, S-T-E-E-L-E, dianasteel.ca, and on Twitter, at dianasteel. Diana, appreciate you making some time for us here this morning. Thanks no so much problem. for this. Thank you. Take care. All right. All right, you as well. Uh, that is uh, Diana Steele, one of the uh, declared candidates to be the next mayor of Edmonton. Again, dianasteele.ca, you want to read more about her. And uh, again, uh, without an incumbent in the race, it, it certainly shapes up to be a very interesting contest ahead of the vote this fall. All right, we got a lot to get to uh, on this Monday morning. My name is Rob Breckenridge. You are listening to 630 Chat. All right, welcome back. Rob Breckenridge filling in for the next couple of weeks. Filling in for whom? Well, that's an interesting question, isn't it? We had a lot to get to on the program today. Uh, something else we're keeping an eye on. We had uh, a record week last week uh, for vaccine deliveries and looking uh, to set a new record this week. Uh, 405,000 doses received last week, looking at 640,000 this week. So those numbers are looking more encouraging. We got some catching up to do in this country, obviously. But this is, I think, the direction we need to be heading. And you think about the conversations that this can all lead to. Now, the United Kingdom, which has been in a pretty strict lockdown as a result of the variant situation they're dealing with there, uh, but they've been one of the best countries in the world so far when it comes to vaccinating population. So today, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson laying out their roadmap for coming out of lockdown. So it will start with some modest steps. March 8th, schools in Britain are going to reopen. By April 12th, they say, some outdoor dining will be allowed. Hairdressers, fitness centers will be allowed to open. Won't be until May 17th that indoor dining will get the green light in the UK. But here's the big one. Step four, June 21st, a return to, quote unquote, normal life. Now, that's a really that, that's a line that really pops out. That's a really weird thing to say almost. It's kind of jarring in a good way. Like, I remember that. I remember what that was like. And it's it's very tantalizing uh, to hear a date assigned to it. Now, obviously, as we've seen, you know, our, our plans are, are constantly subject to change. And we've got some catching up to do, as mentioned on the vaccination front, especially to get to where the UK is. But, you know, the prospect of that is quite something, and it's certainly encouraging. Uh, we certainly need to demand better of the government here when it comes to delivering vaccines and administering vaccines. And this is going to be a mammoth effort. But it's also a reminder to all of us that, look, we've got a vested interest, too, and let's do our part as well in making this a success. So a really interesting conversation happening in the U.K. today. And like I said, we'll talk a bit more about the vaccination situation uh, here at home. And we heard the, from the premier on Friday, uh, the plans now for uh, phase 1B, opening it up. And we'll get some more information later this week, we understand, for those who are 75 and up. Those born in 1946 and some of these other groups. So we've got a clear picture in Alberta how this is all going to work out. We're actually starting to get increased amounts of vaccines delivered to us. So uh, some some reason to get optimistic, I, I think, or I hope. 
on the vaccine front, but you know we've we've kind of been burned before. Or you think back to December, those initial deliveries arriving and how great we felt about the situation. And look at that, Canada's uh, leading the way. And then things kind of went sideways, didn't they? So hopefully we can get that back on track. We shall see. All right, coming up after 9.30, we're going to be joined by Alberta's immigration, yes, well, technically is the Labor and Immigration Minister, uh, Jason Copping. We're going to talk about this uh, critical worker benefit. It's going to be paid out in Alberta in the form of the $1,200 bonus. Other provinces did it a little differently. Some did it as like a, an hourly wage top up. You know, some did the bonus approach. There was some flexibility for provinces there. But what provinces need to decide is who gets this and who doesn't. And that's a tricky process, as we've seen over the last week or so. So we'll find out more about that coming up after 9.30. A lot more to get to on the program today, including your calls, 780-496-0063. My name is Rob Breckenridge. You're listening to 630 Chat. All right, good morning. Here we go. Welcome aboard along the Chorus Radio Network. Rob Breckenridge with you, filling in for the next couple of weeks. And you might say, okay, Rob, well, uh, filling in for whom? It's a logical question. It's a good question. All I can say is uh, stay tuned. So uh, I'll be your uh, guest host uh, for the next couple of weeks and looking forward uh, to these conversations. So look, we got a lot to get to uh, on the program today. The numbers 403-974-8255 for our category audience, 780-496-0063 for our Edmonton audience. And we've got a jam-packed show. We'll tell you more about it uh, along the way here. But I want to get uh, right to our next guest. And so there's been a lot of conversation over the last uh, couple of weeks here. In terms of this critical worker benefit that Alberta has now signed on to, it's a joint federal-provincial program uh, that the federal government puts up. I think it's uh, three-quarters of the money. The provinces kick in an additional quarter. And uh, there's some money available. Either as a wage top-up or kind of like a bonus Uh, to those who have been on the front lines in this pandemic. Now, typically that that term often refers to those in healthcare, and obviously healthcare workers are a part of this. But it's meant to go beyond that, right? Those uh, for whom their their jobs kind of put them in in maybe a a greater risk situation, like uh, workers in grocery stores, as an example. So as a way of kind of rewarding them for the fact that their jobs over the last year have taken on a very different kind of context or certainly presented some additional risk. But there are lines to be drawn here. There's only so much money available as a result of this program. And part of this process involves determining who qualifies and who doesn't. So the Alberta government has made those decisions Not everybody's happy, uh, I suppose, but joining us to talk a bit more about uh, this whole process and uh, the decisions made along the way. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this morning, Jason Copping, Alberta's Minister for Labor and Immigration. Minister Copping, appreciate you joining us here today. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much, and thanks for having me there, Rob. Great to be here. Yeah, and I I think it's important to to clarify all of this for folks and uh, let people know the government's approach on this and, and how this is all going to work. But let me ask the question, first of all, because uh, your government took some some flack for, uh, you know, getting to a decision on this. Other provinces got on board a lot more quickly with this program. Talk about uh, Alberta's thought process here and why it took a little bit longer for, for you guys to sign on. Well, this is, a, as you know, this program started in uh, during the first wave. Uh, we wanted to take a, a good uh, 
long, hard look at how do we distribute these monies? Because as you mentioned in your opening, uh, lines need to be drawn. Uh, so when we took a look at this, um, we looked at all the work that people were, were doing uh, throughout the pandemic. Uh, and then we also had, a, had you know, wanted to take our time. And we also took a look at, you know, particularly the second wave, which happened between October and January. And the second wave was much higher than the, than the first wave. So we determined that that's the, the period of time because under the federal program, you need to pick 16 week period. Uh, so that's the 16 week period that we, we chose. Uh, and then it was on that basis. And that's why we, you know, we made some of the choices that we did. So healthcare, uh, as you mentioned in your earlier remarks, that we thought it was critically important to recognize healthcare workers. Uh, and those providing services in, in congregate care. So particularly, you know, most vulnerable, those with disabilities, uh, you know, our uh, long-term care facilities. So we included, you know, the um, uh, healthcare, social uh, services and education. And that's on the, what I call the public and the quasi-public side. But also we recognized, as you indicated, that, you know, there's not a lot of workers, particularly those providing food and medicine, uh, and that stepped up to the plate. So we want to recognize this. But, but as, you, as you noted, lines need to be drawn. Um, you know, we, we called this the critical worker benefit because it's, it's not essential services workers. Because if you take a look at through the pandemic, uh, essential services, that represents well over 80% of the entire working population. And if we spread out the money, you know, it's a limited pot to all of that, it would have been meaningless. So we focused on these particular areas in the, in the second wave of the, uh, uh, of the, of the pandemic to recognize the tremendous work, uh, that these individuals have done. And, uh, but, but we also want to say, you know, even those to some who do not receive the payment, we want to say thank you to all Albertans for continuing to work through this. But that's why we made a difference between what an essential service worker is, which was over 80% of the population and this program, which focuses on critical workers and the benefit that it provides to them. Okay, so talk about the, the the decision that was made over the last week because there was some frustration that uh, the nonprofit sector was was not a part of this. Uh, the decision was made to change that. Uh, can you walk us through that? Yeah, so, so that's actually not true at all. The nonprofit was always part of this. It's just the delivery mechanism was different. Okay. So you know, so like we take a look at particularly when you talk about community and social services and children's services. You know, a vast majority of the services that are provided through government are actually through the nonprofit sector. So they were always included in the program, um, and but the delivery mechanism is different. So, for on the public or quasi-public side, and and these are looking at um, departments such as health, uh, children's uh, children's services, community and social services, education, all those funds will flow directly from those departments. To these organizations, these not-for-profits, and, and let me give you a few examples. Uh, we have Woods Homes, Crossroads Residential Youth Care, Ben Calf Robe Society, Catholic, uh, Catholic Social Services, just to name a few. There are literally hundreds of, of not-for-profit organizations that are eligible, but it's flowing through the direct line department, so they don't have to apply. So when we, we put on the website that uh, on the private sector, so this is for grocery stores, uh, this is for people who are um, selling medicine, for example, uh, in pharmacies, uh, lo- lower wage workers. Um, we indicated that that was not for not-for-profit, but it wasn't because the program doesn't apply for not-for-profit, but that stream of delivery doesn't apply, and the not-for-profit will receive them through the, um, through the departments through which... Um, uh, that are primarily responsible for the delivery of these uh, of these services. So they were always in. There was no change, uh, and that's just generally how these departments deliver many of their services. Okay, because uh, some had read it that on the government website, the nonprofit sector workers were ineligible. 
But that was yeah. that a misreading or was was that poorly worded? What was the issue there? The, the issue is that wording applied to people uh, people in the private sector stream of this program, right? Okay. Who were applying the grocery store workers? It didn't apply to the whole program, but people read that in that context, saying, "Well, Jesus applies to the whole program, so you know, why is that? That doesn't make any sense." And you're right; that doesn't make any sense. But that's that was uh, it was written in the context of uh, the private sector under that part of the website. But I could see how some people say we found that confusing, so we actually changed the wording on the website and put out a statement very quickly thereafter, saying, "No, no, no." They're, they're, they're in. They've always been in. Uh, and they're being contacted directly by the line departments, uh, children's services, uh, community and social services, health and education. Okay, so uh, the government has posted, and it's up at alberta.ca. So there, there, there is uh, a detailed uh, list of criteria uh, for those who would qualify for this. I think there is some confusion still, and, and you alluded to, you know, situations where there's a need for an application where there isn't. So do individuals apply? Do employers apply? What do people need to know about how this is going to work? Yeah, so great question there, Rob. So employers, uh, we are delivering this through employers. So if you are in the public or quasi-public sector, right, under those, those, those uh, areas that I talked about in terms of health, uh, education, um, children's service, social services, and, or sorry, community social services and children's services, your employer will be contacted directly, uh, and then they will fill the Flow the, uh, flow the funds through them. If you're in the private sector, so grocery store clerks, for example, or uh, uh, again, you know, working in a, in a pharmacy, uh, then your employer can apply through the, uh, the portal. Uh, we've had already to date, because the portal went live on Wednesday, we've had uh, just over 2,000 applications that are currently being assessed uh, and more coming in. And, uh, and so the, the individual employee doesn't need to apply. Now, there may be some, uh, you know, employees who are wondering whether um, they're eligible, so they can go to the website and look on the website, or they can uh, send an email if, they, if they're, they're curious about this at uh, cwb at gov.ab.ca just to, to ask uh, if they're eligible. Uh, if they don't think their employer is applying, they can talk to their employer. Uh, and then uh, if, if they think they're eligible after they've asked the question and their employer hasn't applied, then they can talk to that office, and then we will get the information directly to the employer. Uh, but we've uh, we've seen some good uptake on our uh, on our website, and we expect more in the coming weeks. Let me give you a chance to, to address this as well. And what, what seems to some like some arbitrary criteria that couriers, for example, uh, some couriers are eligible, uh, those who drive trucks, but not those who drive bikes. Uh, delivery drivers, those who deliver food, I, I think, are, are eligible, but people who deliver other things, maybe not. So, could you address that? Yeah. So, so again, you know, it goes back to drawing lines, and it, and it's unfortunate um, that we need to draw lines because we recognize the tremendous work that all essential services workers have done throughout the pandemic. But there's only a limited uh, amount of funds, uh, so we drew the lines on looking primarily healthcare workers, um, and and even then, even though the the program is was designed, the federal criteria was primarily for uh, for lower wages. Uh, Given the tremendous work that's done by our nurses, for example, and uh, uh, our healthcare, a number of our healthcare professionals, we followed um, uh, the pattern set by a couple of other provinces to include our nurses and healthcare workers because of the tremendous efforts they did during the second wave. But when we add more people, then we have to draw lines elsewhere. Uh, and so when we talk about the uh, private sector, we felt it was important to recognize those who were involved in the delivery of groceries and, and, and medicine. Uh, and so we we included a private sector um, 
section of this program, but not other provinces did. Some just focused solely on public sector uh, and others focused more on private sector, but we wanted to do both. But we do recognize that when you draw a line, there will be people on one side of it and people on the other side of it. And it's not that we're not thankful for all the work that all Albertans who continue to work this pandemic have done, uh, but we felt it was it was uh, reasonable and that the most Albertans, and, and I've heard from Albertans who, even though they're not eligible for it, you know, they think that the government has, has largely got this right in terms of we need to recognize our, uh, our healthcare professionals. We need to recognize those who are supporting uh, vulnerable Albertans and congregate care and recognizing grocery store workers and those uh, in the, uh, in the um, supply chains for, uh, for medicine uh, is important. Uh, but, but, you know, for others who are, are not eligible for it, we still say thank you so much for your, for your hard work. Um, but this is, you know, we, we need to recognize those critical workers who are doing uh, work in these sectors. Well, it's called the Critical Worker Benefit. Uh, more details, as mentioned, alberta.ca. Minister Copping, appreciate you joining us here today. Thanks for this. Thanks so much, sir, Rob. Have a great day. All right, you as well. That is Jason Copping. He is Alberta's uh, Labor Minister. So some explanation on some of the decisions they made with regard to who's eligible, who isn't for this critical worker benefit. And yeah, look, you're not going to please everybody. And some of it is going to seem arbitrary. Lines got to be drawn somewhere. And I think the government was going to be criticized regardless. Does it all make sense? Is it all totally logical? I mean, look, I think you can make some valid criticisms of this approach here. But even if you did it a little bit differently, I think you'd still run into some of those issues. All right. Let's take a quick time out here. We're going to come back. We'll set up the rest of the show for you here today. And, and again, we'll talk a bit more not just about today's show, but uh, how things are going to unfold over the next couple of weeks. Uh, so again, uh, I'll be filling in here for the next two weeks and then handing it off to, well, uh, to others. We shall see. Rob Breckenridge with you on the Chorus Radio Network. All right, welcome back as we get things going on a Monday morning here. Rob Breckenridge with you for today, for the next two weeks. So this is kind of a bridge period, I guess. Uh, I know a lot of folks curious here Monday morning, uh, given Friday and uh, the host's uh, last day, hanging up uh, the headset, and uh, Danielle moving on to two other things. So what next? Uh, to be honest, I don't know. So what I can tell you is uh, I'm here for the next two weeks, and then all I can say is after that, stay tuned. Okay, so that's the situation uh, as it stands here today, as it stands here for the next couple of weeks. And uh, after two weeks, uh, I've got my show. I'm going to go back to that. And uh, you may be hearing some other voices uh, in, in this time slot. We shall see. Uh, so that's probably as much as I can tell you. And honestly, I don't know a whole lot more than that, in case you're, you're thinking I'm, I'm holding back on you. So we've got a lot to talk about on the program here today, though. We will get to some of the news from the weekend, and I know this has become a big issue uh, with regard to, is this a question of religious freedom? Is this a case of, you know, having meaningful public health measures in place to deal with a pandemic? Certainly a clash between the two, as uh, we saw over the weekend. Uh, Grace Life Church, just west of Edmonton, once again throw open their doors yesterday. Hundreds packing in for Sunday service. Pastor of that church, the Remand Center, uh, for openly defying injunctions on this matter. Of course, we saw protests uh, on Saturday, uh, folks marching to the Remand Center demanding his release. So we'll talk about all of that, and, and in the context of well, what what is a reasonable step right now? I think the Alberta government has tried to find a balance here, in saying to religious organizations, churches, mosques, etc. Uh, that you can still have some in-person service. 
but it's got to be limited. You know, it's got to be some health measures in place. You know, and instead of having one or two church services on a Sunday, you want to spread it out and have a whole bunch. I think there are ways to get creative that don't involve defying public health measures. And I think a lot of this is, is political, but some pretty strong feelings on all sides of this. So we'll talk about that on the program uh, here this morning. Uh, coming up later on today, uh, the federal government is uh, making some changes with regards to official bilingualism, and that's often a sore spot out here in Alberta. Like, I get the country is a bilingual country. There are some government jobs that are just, by their essence, going to be bilingual. What about the Supreme Court of Canada? It's one thing if the government of the day wants to give preference to a bilingual judge over somebody else. But should it be a statutory requirement that Supreme Court justices be bilingual? That would leave a lot of pretty accomplished people off the bench. You know, documents can be translated. Testimony can be translated. Ideally, you want the best legal minds on the Supreme Court. So what is the the danger of watering down that criteria and making bilingualism more important than anything else? We're going to talk about that coming up later on this morning. Also, the question of single-event sports betting. It is still, in Canada, illegal to bet on a sporting event, a single event. You can do the sports select parlay where you got to bet on multiple events. But, you know, slapping down some money on the Super Bowl or the Grey Cop or whatever it is, is still illegal. Pretty easy to do online. But the criminal code still recognizes it as a crime. There are actually two bills at the moment. One is a government bill. The other is a private member's bill from a conservative that would legalize single event sports betting. And it it seems like things are finally changing. And I think probably this time we're going to see that change made. But we'll talk about that coming up later on today with the Canadian Gaming Association. And coming up after 10 o'clock, and this is, uh, I think, going to be a fascinating story. 1983. Who remembers 1983? Um, I, I vaguely do, but there were actually two instances that year uh, that the world came very close to nuclear war, essentially uh, Armageddon. Now, one of those, and much has been written about this, and the Soviet scientist who, who ended up as the hero of the story, it was a computer malfunction, but it appeared as though there were NATO missiles incoming. Now, this individual recognized that this can't be right, and so reacted very calmly thus averting a Soviet retaliation to the missiles that were never there in the first place. There was also an incident in the fall of 1983. Uh, There was a NATO military exercise called Able Archer. Now, military exercises uh, during the Cold War were very common on both sides. But for some reason, the Soviets became convinced that this was not an exercise, that this was an actual invasion. And they were prepared to respond. And there's some new documents out last week that show just how close the Soviets actually were to responding. They were loading nuclear uh, missiles on, onto airplanes. They were ready to go. And so, yeah, it's, it's weird to think just how close we came at the time to the Cold War becoming very hot and very nuclear. So we're going to talk about that coming up after 10 o'clock this morning. Uh, Also on the program today, we'll talk about the new travel restrictions that come into place as of today. Now, whether you're returning by air, returning by land, things are going to be different. 
The rules aren't the same, of course, for land crossing and uh, those returning by air. And, uh, you know, it's been some interesting stories over the last couple of days about some of the uh, hassles involved for returning travelers, difficulty in booking these hotels that they're supposed to book, and a lot of uncertainty over what exactly this is going to cost. Initially, it was $2,000, and then it turned out, well, maybe it's not $2,000. Was the government just rounding it up to 2000 So a lot of questions on that front, so we'll talk about that. Like I said, we'll have some time for your phone calls in Calgary. You can reach us, 403-974-8255 in Edmonton, 780-496-0063. So when we come back after 10 o'clock, Cold War historian uh, Tom Nichols is going to join us. So we'll talk about this Able Archer exercise in 1983 and the new documents that have just come to light here in 2021 uh, that showed just how close the world came to World War Three back in 1983. So we'll talk about that uh, coming up just after 10 o'clock. Well, some time for your phone calls, as mentioned. I want to get back to the news from the weekend. We'll talk about the situation with uh, Grace Life Church near Edmonton. I uh, had a church in Calgary, I guess in solidarity, kind of do the same thing. Uh, open up their church, full capacity, uh, no masks, that, that, whole, that whole approach. You know, the thing to keep in mind, folks, and it was a little unnerving yesterday, word that Alberta's R value might have crept back up above one. And we're in a precarious situation at the moment. We've eased some restrictions. I think we've been trending in the right direction. But it's not guaranteed that we're going to continue to trend in that direction. And with fitness centers and other businesses waiting with fingers crossed that things will continue to improve, and we'll be able to ease even more restrictions. This kind of an approach seems really counterproductive. Do we really want to have to take a step backward? I get that people are frustrated, people are impatient, people are kind of done with all of this. But if we're not smart, we're going to go backward. So we'll get back to that coming up uh, in our next hour as well. 403-974-8255-780-496-0063. Rob Breckenridge with you on the Chorus Radio Network. Welcome to this hour along the Chorus Radio Network. Rob Breckenridge with you on this Monday morning. And uh, plenty more still to get to on the program, including more time for your phone calls. But uh, I wanted to get to this next conversation. And, and this, to me, is, is quite fascinating. When we think about uh, recent history or Cold War history, 1983 doesn't necessarily jump out. But it was uh, almost, well, in a couple of respects, actually, uh, a very eventful and perhaps even a very destructive year. Maybe we, we uh, know about the uh, false alarm that occurred in the uh, 1983, and Stanislav Petrov, who may have up, uh, ended up sa saving the world by recognizing that four missiles were not incoming. Then a few months later, the world came close yet again to nuclear war, to World War III. Abel Archer was a NATO military exercise in November of 1983, and that's all it was. But the Soviets read it much differently, and some newly released documents show just how intent the Soviets were on responding to what they thought was an actual NATO invasion. As the Washington Post describes it, the Soviet Union put fighter bombers loaded with nuclear bombs on 24-hour alert in East Germany. The alert included preparations for the immediate use of nuclear weapons. We came awfully close to war. As we now know, joining us to talk more about all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program Tom Nichols. He's a professor of national security mm -hmm. affairs at the U.S. Naval War College, the author, author of several books. His most recent, uh, The Death of Expertise. Um, Tom, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Great to be with you, Rob. Thanks for having me. 
So, I mean, look, you, you know this history very well, and I'm, I'm, you've certainly written a lot about, talked a lot about what happened with Abel Archer in, in 1983, but were even you surprised by some of what emerged this week and, and just how close we actually came to war then? No, actually, um, I, I think it's confirming what we were worried about um, all along. Um, I don't think we were on the actual, you know, moment of decision. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think it's important to point out that, you know, the Soviets by that point were um, pretty had pretty much convinced themselves that war was inevitable. And when a major power believes that war is inevitable, they look for the moment where they think it's going to start. Um, you know, you mentioned 1983 not being a year that jumps out at people, but it, it should. I mean, 1983, I would argue that 1983 was probably the most dangerous year of the Cold War uh, since 1962, since at least the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, because all year, um, you know, we'd had the shoot down, the, the Soviet Union shot down a 747, a South Korean airliner. Uh, the United States overthrew a Marxist uh, dictatorship in Grenada. Um, the the uh, President Reagan, the American president, gave a speech about the evil empire. The United States announced the beginning of the Strategic Defense Initiative, the Star Wars program. Um, it was a tough year, and by the time November rolled around, um, there were you know the Soviets were pretty much convinced that it was going to be go time, and they had convinced themselves that it would happen during exercises, which is what happened during Able Larger. And that's why yeah. uh, I think it's kind of scary to look back at this now. And by the way, and it was also the year we had the, the false alarm incident uh, that, that right. was, you know, could have happened at any time. But I guess in the context of all of this, it's pretty interesting that, that it happened to occur that year, isn't it? Yeah, and it happened, I think, because the, um, the superpowers were really on, um, you know, the edge of their seats. Now, we had had similar... Mistakes in in 1979, um, the um, the Air Force woke up President Carter's national security advisor and said, "We're going to call you back in 10 minutes to let you know if you need to wake up the president and launch a full nuclear retaliatory strike against the Soviet Union." And that happened because somebody put a training tape into the computer um, in the middle of the night and and didn't realize what they were looking at. Um, so those moments <clears throat> happen. The, the danger is when they take place in an atmosphere where everybody's expecting war. And that's where we were by late 1983. We, we were really, I mean, I was a young man at the time, and I fully expected that World War III was just a matter of when rather than if. So let's get back to Abel Archer. So it was a military exercise, and obviously in the Cold War, military exercises were, were common on, on both sides. Uh, but what was it about Abel Archer that, that had the Soviets convinced that it was a, a backdrop for, for something else, something real? That's, that's a great question. Um, you know, you're absolutely right that both sides conduct exercises. They do it to maintain their readiness, um, to keep everybody on their toes, make sure they know what they're doing. Abel Archer was specifically a war game, and it was meant to test communications between the United States and its NATO allies specifically about the release of nuclear weapons. And so the the exercise got to a point, even though all of the communications had exercise, exercise, exercise uh, written on them in a way that we knew the Soviets could decode, what we think happened is that the Soviets weren't believing it. 
And they said, you know, this is, they're calling it an exercise, but they really are getting ready to release nuclear weapons. And they're going to jump out from under this exercise and they're going to attack us um, with an onslaught of, of nuclear strikes and take us out that way. And, and that's the thing, I suppose, if, if we're ever going to end up in war, neither side was going to announce that, right? That's not how it was going to work. So the idea that uh, there would be some kind of a sneak attack or there would be some kind of cover for a sneak attack, I suppose both sides viewed that as, as plausible, didn't they? Well, but, you know, we did in the 1950s. Um, we used to plan for something. I mean, I suppose it's not funny now, but we used to plan for something called a boob attack, which was short for bolt out <laughs> of the blue. Um, you know, the boob attack was that, you know, one morning we woke up and there was this cloud of Soviet nuclear bombers coming over the Canadian Arctic to make their way down to the United States and annihilate, you know, Syracuse or something. Um, we, we worried less about that over time, except as the Cold War picked, heated up again. And, and it actually heated up again in the late Carter and early Reagan era together. Um, and so the Soviets had convinced themselves uh, that the only way the Americans would do this would be to do it by surprise. Because you have to remember, we were horrendously outnumbered by the Soviet Union in Europe and in NATO. I mean, the one thing they had right is that if we were going to beat them in a war, we were going to have to do it with nuclear weapons and we'd have to go first. Um, what we had all planned for was a crisis that evolves into a conventional fight, that evolves into limited nuclear use, that evolves into a global nuclear war. What was scary was that the Soviet Union, or at least some guys, some old guys in the Kremlin, had convinced themselves that the Americans weren't going to bother with staying on the defensive and that they were just going to create this fake exercise and jump out from under it and attack the Soviet Union, which was, you know, purely crazy. Um, and wasn't even, you know, close to anything the Americans were planning. But it tells you something about where the where the Soviet Union's mind was uh, by the early 1980s as the, that system was coming apart. What's interesting here is that, look, obviously common sense prevailed, but it wasn't necessarily obvious or guaranteed that it would. And just as maybe the, the September false alarm had a hero, was there a hero here? This uh, Lieutenant General uh, Leonard uh, Perutz, I think his name is, right. that seems to, to loom large in avoiding war. Yeah, um, Perutz and a few others. There, there were some good decisions made going into Able Archer. One of them was to not involve, or even before the exercise began, <clears throat> it was to not involve any senior government leaders, because that that's um, pretty provocative. If you start moving the president or the secretary of defense around, even if it's in an exercise, um, you know you're making it a, you're making it pretty hard for your opponents to to figure out what it is you're doing. Is this real? Is it not real? Why is you know why is the Secretary of Defense um, you know shuttling back and forth between the Pentagon and the White House? Um, the other was General Perutz, who who said uh, when he was asked by his subordinates, you know, should we increase our readiness status because it looks like the Soviet Union is increasing their readiness status? Um, Perutz was the guy who said, no, 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 you know, um, stay cool, be calm, don't, don't do that. Um, because I think at that point, the, the real danger is that if we had increased our readiness status, the Soviets would have said, aha, there they go. 
Um, you know, we knew all along, you know, even though what really is happening is this kind of terrible um, dynamic of they increase their readiness, we increase ours, they go to the next step, we go to the next step, and pretty soon you have um, two countries at war that never wanted to get there. Did you get a sense that some lessons were, were learned from that, that it was recognized as a near miss and uh, that, that these kinds of exercises maybe maybe unfolded differently in the aftermath of that? I, I wish I could say yes to that. Um, I, you know, and this is a good place to remind everybody I don't speak for the U.S. government. Right. Um, you know, the CIA kind of argued for years within itself. And, you know, part of the problem with any intelligence failure like this is that you don't want to call it an intelligence failure because then somebody has to be to blame for it. Um, to his credit, Reagan's CIA director um, early on, even though um, Casey was um, pretty much of a cowboy in a lot of ways, um, he took it seriously, went to Reagan within, I think within six months, he went to Reagan and said, you know, uh, they really got scared by this. And Reagan by the way, and this is a kind of an unknown piece of American history, Reagan had already decided by uh, early uh, to mid-83 that things had gone too far and that he needed to somehow turn this off, that he needed to to stop this kind of march to war that the two superpowers seemed to be on. Um, but um, whether the rest of the American bureaucracy learned a lesson, they're still arguing about it. Well, you know, was it really that serious? Were they really... Were they just signaling? Were they, um, did they mean it? Um, I think, you know, this is a good case study in what happens when you, when your opponent takes you very seriously, perhaps more seriously than you wanted them to. Um, I, at the time, <clears throat> I supported the Reagan administration's approach to the Soviet Union, but I think historically I'm forced to conclude that we overdid it, that, you know, we, we scared them too successfully, and and they were already a paranoid regime, and we should have been more aware of that. Well, as you say, it was a pivotal year, uh, as it turns out, in Cold War history, and almost 40 years later, we're still learning more about it. Uh, Professor Tom Nichols, appreciate your expertise uh, on all of this, and thanks so much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. All right. All the best. Uh, that is uh, Tom Nichols, professor of national security affairs, U.S. Naval War College, author of several books. His most recent, The Death of Expertise, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters. Uh, but someone has written, uh, written extensively about Cold War history. And this was a really important chapter. And here we are, 38 years later, learning more about just how close the world came to war back in 1983. And as Tom Nichols pointed out, a lot that led up to that. So maybe we don't think of 1983 as a historically significant, but it really was. We need to take a break here. Plenty more to get to on the Monday edition of the program here. Rob Breckenridge filling in. We're back with more right after this. Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge filling in today and uh, for the next couple of weeks. Filling in for whom? Well, stay tuned. Let's get to the phones in the meantime. Here's some time for your calls in Calgary. The number is 403-974-8255 in Edmonton, 780-496-0063. This is Derek. Derek, welcome to the program. Hey, Rob. How's it going? Hey, Derek. Pretty good. That's good. Uh, so I am a worker in the restaurant industry, and the restaurant okay. I work at has an open concept kitchen, which basically means that I'm interacting with the customers all the time. Okay. So the thing that I kind of wonder about is why, when I'm at increased risk for COVID because of that, am I not receiving any kind of benefits? For the critical worker benefit, you mean? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, look, um, I mean, it's, it's a fair question. 
Mm-hmm. Because any anyone really who is at increased risk should be able to receive some kind of benefit, whether it's the critical worker benefit or whatever. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I I couldn't really argue against that. I mean, as you heard the you know the, the labor minister say that they you know they had to make a decision, they had to draw some lines somewhere. Some people are going to get left out. And I think they realized yeah. that was going to be uh, inevitable in all of this. But yeah, you're right. I mean, if you take it on on face value that this is kind of the idea here uh, for for individuals who are in those kinds of jobs, then it's yeah, it's it's hard to reconcile that. I would concede that point. Oh, for sure. Yeah, Derek, appreciate that. Yeah, look, you know, it was inevitable that you'd have some people unhappy or frustrated with all of that. Let's get back to the phones, though. This is Steve. Hey there, Steve. Stop calling Rob the guest host. Let's make That's this permanent, people. Call <laughs> this. Okay, never mind. So, um, nature can cause a nuclear incident. When the Japanese earthquake hit or tsunami hit Japan, their radar went completely down. And the USS Ronald Reagan, who does nothing but babysit North Korea all day, uh, thought, whoa, what just happened? And they went on a war footing within five minutes. And what happened is, is they immediately uh, notified the president and the vice president. They started taking to secure locations. And it wasn't until a bit later that the National Oceanic um, Atmospheric, whatever they're called, uh, released a statement. And then everybody started to calm down. But they still had another problem where there were 3,000 inbound flights to Japan. And they had no radar. So the USS Ronald Reagan... Uh, became a de facto air traffic control, and um, they also started diverting AWAC planes, which is, people can look that up if they want to, but uh, the bottom line is, uh, they didn't know what happened, and if you had the wrong commander running the show, and thinking, whoa, did the Chinese or the North Koreans have something going on, mm-hmm. uh, it could have ended badly, but then after that, uh, and you only learn through uh, surreptitiously that now the National Oceanic people have a direct line to the Pentagon and the White House. So this kind of problem doesn't happen again. Well, maybe that makes sense. Yeah, that's a good point, Steve. Appreciate the phone call. We're up against the bottom of the hour here. Plenty more still to get to on the Monday edition of the program here. Rob Breckenridge filling in. You're listening to the Chorus Radio Network. All right, welcome back. Rob Breckenridge uh, sitting in with you today and for the next couple of weeks. Still to come on the program, we'll talk about uh, single event sports betting remains technically always has been illegal in canada even if a lot of canadians do it but it actually appears as though we're on the cusp of legalizing this and i think there's sort of a a shift happening and we see it in the united states which has previously taken a pretty hard line against sports betting now embracing it professional sports leagues are starting to embrace the idea so where is this all headed? We'll talk about that coming up after 11 o'clock. After 11.30, we'll talk about some of the federal government's plans for uh, changing the Official Languages Act and promoting the use of French in Canada. One of the proposed changes, and we're going to focus on it, is enshrining into law the requirement that Supreme Court of Canada justices be bilingual. Is that practical? Does that make sense? Is it constitutional? We'll get to that after 1130. So much more still to get to in the program here today. Uh, right now, though, I want to take a look at a fascinating new book, which kind of uh, juxtaposes, I guess, the way in which we're hardwired, right? We're products of evolution. 
the way our brain works as a result of all of that. And even though we think of evolution as bestowing advantages, that appears as though maybe the way we're wired isn't necessarily compatible with the world we've created for ourselves. Uh, that certainly we have a number of health challenges we're facing as a society, even before the pandemic. And certainly this has exacerbated all of that. It's uh, the topic of a new book. It's called uh, Hardwired, How Our Instincts to Be Healthy Are Making Us Sick. Joining us on the line is the co-author of this book. He's an emergency physician and professor of public health at the University of Alberta, Dr. Louis Francis Cuddy. Joins us on the program here this morning. Dr. Francis Cuddy, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's interesting because, I mean, this isn't necessarily meant to be a book about neuroscience, but certainly I think the way we're wired is is very relevant in, in understanding the, the world we live in today and, and how we're interacting with it. So what, what was the impetus uh, on, on your part for, for this book and this exploration? Well, my colleague, uh, my co-author from Calgary, Dr. Uh, Robert Barrett, and I have uh, for many years now been working on safety and uh, trying to help organizations understand um, safety and, you know, why people do what they do. <clears throat> and so we, you know, we, we gave a series of presentations and people always come up to us afterwards and, and say, well, you guys should capture, you know, these thoughts and put them in a book because they make so much sense. And so what we did was we, you know, put together um, a book that's based on stories and research that uh, makes us try and understand why we do what we do. Uh, without thinking about it. So, you know, the concept that we're actually hardwired to survive has been with us for millions of years, and it's worked, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so now, unfortunately, what's happened is uh, we have it too good in our society in terms of access to food, access to, um, you know, social media. And these are having real consequences in our lives. And people have to understand that it's not what they're doing or not doing. It's just the way they're wired. What Rob and I say is that uh, we're running on outdated software. And the few of us that have been able to figure out how to, you know, create our own patches and survive in this modern world um, need to share that with others as well. Because on the surface, it seems straightforward enough. I mean, you know, I have a vested interest in being healthy. So logically, I, I should follow that path, but clearly we, we don't always do that. So where, where does the conflict come in and, and where is our, our wiring uh, a part of the problem? Well, let me give you a good example. Uh, if you've got young people around you, just take a look at them and see how they're so addicted to their devices. Yeah. Um, and the reason for that is <clears throat> that for you know hundreds of millions of years, uh, we understood the concept of being socially accepted and the importance of being socially accepted so that we could, you know, share with the food, the limited food that was found or the limited shelter or finding out where mates were or fire was or where water was. And so it was very important to us to have a sense of belonging to, you know, a group of individuals. And what social media does uh, is immediately start establishing those, uh, you can call them tribes or clans or cliques. And if you, you know, realize that when somebody gives you a like or sends you a tweet or sends you a message or an email or your phone vibrates or your phone rings, that actually re releases endorphins in your brain. And it uh, creates this reward system that, you know, we strive for more likes, you know, more uh, hits and, you know, more friends. 
But yet that creates this almost this empty world that you can portray yourself to be what you're not on social media. And then when it eventually hits you that you're maybe not as good as you're uh, pretending to be, uh, it hits you hard. And that's why we're seeing such a rise in mental illness amongst our young people, uh, such a rise in depression and stress. You know, the World uh, Health Organization predicted accurately by 2020 depression was going to be one of the leading causes of disability and we're seeing it you know we're seeing it uh, play out right in front of us and what the pandemic did was uh, show us quite clearly that the haves and the have-nots are going to have a different outcome uh, to this pandemic and unfortunately uh, folks that um, are in the have-not category are getting hit far harder than folks that are in the uh, have category. Yeah, and, I mean, obviously, this this book has its roots pre-pandemic, as you mentioned. Um, but but as you say, then are, are we seeing we're seeing a lot of this exacerbated? I would imagine. How has this been illustrating some of the the additional points you make in this book? Well, well we start off by you know talking about hospitals and how dangerous hospitals are, and uh, we do that because we want to emphasize the importance of wellness. And so the whole book is uh, premised on. You know, how do we better control uh, risks within our lives? How do we crave cravings that, you know, for millions of years have kept us alive? You know, you got to remember our forefathers and foremothers used to, you know, scrape to find a morsel of food. And then when they did find that morsel of food, they were rewarded, like we are rewarded every time we, you know, find food and eat. But unfortunately, what's happened within our society currently is we got way too much food. And so what ends up happening is, you know, the more you eat, especially salt, fat, and sugar, the more you're rewarded with your brain. And your brain thinks that you're doing a great job, that you're a great hunter, you're going to be a great provider for your family. And yet it's the exact opposite that's um, that's happening. You know, we talk about sleep and the importance of sleep. Uh, you know, something that society has almost completely forgotten, that there's a reason why we sleep for so much. You know, the brain resets itself when you're sleeping. Cancer is you know, fought when you're sleeping, you can solve complex problems when you're sleeping. And yet, <clears throat> being socially wired uh, makes it very difficult to, you know, fall asleep, stay asleep, and, uh, you know, wake up well rested. So the book is a series of stories that we tell uh, that people, and, and they seem to be enjoying it. I mean, it's sold out a couple of times already. People, you know, read the book and say, wow, I can relate to that. And it's quite simple. You know, we've taken good science. Uh, we've tried not to interpret it and just present it based on uh, our experiences. And, uh, yeah, it's resonating quite nicely. Yeah, that's good. And I mean, and, and I think this, you know, it matters to people, obviously. It's it's kind of about who we are, the choices we make, and and, you know, the science behind all of that. But as you alluded to, I mean, it's not just an assessment of the problem and then saying, you know, things are bad and here's why and, and walking away. You, you know, you made the, you know, the reference, the metaphor of the the, uh, the software patch for the outdated software we're running on. So in kind of rethinking this or changing our approaches, whether individually or collectively, where, where do we begin? Well, what we need to do is understand that the forces that are making us do what we do are literally hardwired within us. And so it's it's not good enough to just say, uh, don't eat as many hamburgers or stop smoking or don't do those drugs or, you know, be nice to people or get your sleep. It's important to read <clears throat> and understand why these things are happening in the first place and then to come up with some solutions. Uh, one of the solutions, for example, has been to rediscover the social determinants of health. 
you know, the people that do well within our society are people that have had their, you know, basic needs met. So in other words, um, they've had uh, good parenting, they've had uh, good consistent social support as they've been growing up, they've had an opportunity to get an education that's led them to a good job, that led them to, you know, the ability to afford good housing, uh, the ability to attract good mates. And then the understanding of the importance of social cohesion. You know, uh, we talk about loneliness in the book, and we know for a fact now that loneliness is worth for, is worse for your health than smoking. And yet, where uh, are we with regards to what the UK has done? The UK has a minister of loneliness whose sole function is to try and create um, more connection within society. We, we talk about happiness and we talk about the importance of volunteering. You know, people can get 40% happier by simply volunteering. If happiness is 100%, um, I can break it down for you. 50% of that is genetic. You either inherit it or you don't. You can only get happier by about 10% by having stuff, okay? Having money mm-hmm. will only make you about 10% happier. But you can become 40% happier by volunteering. And that's why big companies like, you know, the Telesis of the world have formal volunteer programs incorporated within their structure because they understand that, you know, employees that volunteer are happier employees, are more likely to be more productive, more likely to have less, uh, you know, absenteeism and less turnover as well. So if the reader just wants to start getting a little happier, all they have to do is, you know, go out there and start volunteering. Um, so we talk about happiness. We talk about sleep. We talk about things that, uh, you know, are, are pretty topical today. And then we put a little bit of science behind it. And then we always come back to linking it as to how we're hardwired either for or against those choices. It's quite fascinating. The book is called Hardwired, How Our Instincts to Be Healthy Are Making Us Sick. Dr. Francis Cuddy, thanks so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Bye now. All right, take care. Dr. Lewis Francis Cuddy, uh, co-author of Hardwired, How Our Instincts to Be Healthy Are Making Us Sick. He's an emergency physician in Edmonton, also a professor at the University of Alberta. We'll take a pause here. A few other things to get to before the top of the hour. Our phone lines are open as well in Edmonton, 780-496-0063 in Calgary, 403-974-8255. Rob Breckenridge sitting in today. We're back with more right after this. Welcome back. You know, as our guest says, look, loneliness is, is a real problem in society. Loneliness is a health risk. Like there, there's a danger to loneliness. And I think in fairness to the Alberta government, it's been a guiding principle in the decisions they've made around public health measures. Now, obviously, throughout uh, all of this, since March of last year, uh, the government has taken criticism on both sides that they've gone too far or not far enough. And I think at the moment we're, we're in that same kind of dynamic, aren't we? But you look at the decision around getting kids back in school, the decision to allow some kids' activities to resume – You know, the provisions that exist for people who live alone, some of the additional measures they put in place uh, on on that front over the Christmas break, all with that in mind. But it's clear that we're all longing for more. And there there is a real fatigue that's setting in. And I think that that isolation and loneliness is, is really taking a toll. So how do we balance all of that? I mean, hopefully we can keep moving forward. We'll see what uh, this week brings. It's been uh, a couple of weeks, 
since uh, restrictions were first eased. And I know the government wanted to take sort of a three-week snapshot of that before making any decisions on where to go from here. So let's hope we can keep moving in the right direction because really we need to. More time for your phone calls here. Let's go back to the phones and uh, we'll say hello to David. David, good morning. Welcome to the program. Good morning, Rob. Congratulations on being promoted to the whole day. <laughs> for two weeks, yes. Appreciate that. <laughs> Very quickly, um, six months ago, I would have said, I'm talking about um, Supreme Court judges being being bilingual. Mm-hmm. I would have said no, because I object to it. We want the best minds. But what I did find out was if somebody's in, if a judge is interested in rising up the, up the ladder to the, eventually being on the Supreme Court, they can get free French lessons. And I'm not French. I barely mm-hmm. speak French. I can say bonjour and that's about it. But if I was French, wouldn't I like to talk to somebody who is fluent in French? To me, it seems that I don't like being, I don't like concessions continually being made to Quebec and the the French part of the country. But I think this is something that if you're really interested in doing it, that's a qualification that would not be unacceptable to me. Okay, interesting point, David. Appreciate the phone call. We'll talk about that coming up after 1130, right? There's there's a difference between sort of being... um, a little bit bilingual and completely functional bilingual. So what kind of a threshold should we have in place for Supreme Court justices? And a lot of these are political considerations, which I guess to some extent we have in terms of regional representation or having you know diversity amongst the judges, all of these factors. Would bilingualism be another? But again, the requirement would be that every justice be bilingual and the federal government's proposing to make that the law so is that going too far we'll talk about that coming up after eleven thirty this morning uh this is mark mark welcome to the program hey rob uh i'm sure your guest is a very smart man obviously he's a doctor so he's got to be smart right um i just find it hard sometimes um people i i don't i don't believe in race privilege but i do believe in class privilege and it's a little easier for someone who, who's maybe maybe he has, maybe he hasn't. I'm not 100% sure. But may, maybe he's lived a privileged life, and it's easy to say, you know, get better friends, get better educated. Obviously, you're going to end up better in life in, in most cases. I would prefer having a, um, a, a former heroin addict or an alcoholic or um, uh, someone of that sort to who's turned their life around uh, and never really had any class privilege growing up uh, but maybe became successful but anything this guy is saying there's nothing radical about what he's saying whatsoever it's just all uh, uh, stuff that's it's common sense for someone who who grew up maybe maybe the way he did in a in a, in a, a privileged class I, I would have liked to have known more about his past uh, what he came from uh, and how he got to where he is and that way I find it I find it a lot more interesting to listen to people who who've actually um, uh, fought to, to get where they are and not just, you know, had, had it handed to them on a silver platter. Not that he has. I have no idea, but in most cases, I'm sure that he has. So for me, it's just, it's just I find it a little more interesting listening to someone who has had a, a really rough life and, and turned themselves around and not really had um, uh, um, me, for instance, I'm not well-educated. I've always survived. Uh, that's my instinct is, is survival instincts. Like he talks about hardwired. Uh, for me, it's more about um, uh, 
um, surviving rather than, than living. But uh, anyways, I don't know exactly where I'm going with this. But I'm just trying to okay. make a point that... Yeah, Mark, fair yeah. enough. Yeah, I appreciate the call. I mean, look, it, it, the book isn't the uh, Dr. Lewis Francis Cuddy story, right? Uh, the, the book is a book about science. And so you got a couple of scientists who are endeavoring to present that in, in a way that, uh, you know, they hope people that can, can understand and appreciate it. So I, I don't think they're looking to insert themselves into the story or say, be like us in any sense. Uh, I wanted to get to this, and we, we talk about, you know, the social isolation, the frustration with uh, ongoing public health measures and where that's spilling over. We saw, again, this weekend, uh, this uh, Grace Life Church west of Edmonton, and the pastor who's uh, in the remand center at the moment for defying injunctions, uh, even with his absence, hundreds packed into Sunday service yesterday. So uh, that, that defiance uh, very much still on, on show over the weekend. Let me go to clip number one here, if we could, here, Patrick. Uh, more on this story uh, from Global's uh, Chris Chacon. Even in the absence of Pastor James Coates, Grace Life Church still held its Sunday service. Good morning, Grace Life. Inside, another pastor stood at the pulpit. Outside, hundreds eager to get inside. But members controlling traffic were heard telling people driving up that they had already reached its fire code maximum capacity and were encouraging them to watch the live stream. Parkland RCMP were also on site. In a statement, RCMP say the church once again did not comply with public health orders by exceeding its capacity limit. Police say they'll continue to investigate and will consult with AHS on next steps. But inside, it was service as usual. I did speak with Pastor James this morning on the phone. His voice was its usual self, strong. And he wanted me to pass on to you that he is doing fine. Support for Pastor Coates continued Sunday with a service held outside the Edmonton Remand Center. This followed a massive gathering Saturday with hundreds demanding his release. The church and its pastor have repeatedly violated public health restrictions put in place to reduce transmission of COVID-19. It is unfortunate when anyone's faith leads them to, to actions that put them sort of above the law or outside the law, because that can... It's almost always just going to result in unpleasantness. Netta Fillett with the Edmonton Interfaith Center says there was a need to be absolutely clear about where the center stands. And even if we feel called by, by, by our God or the divine to do something that is not for the social good, we should think about that and think, are we listening to God? Are we listening to our ego? Are we listening to our our own possibly selfish desires. Coates is due in court again on February 24th. Chris Chacon, Global News. All right, so we haven't heard the last of uh, this story, I, I suspect. We'll see what Dr. Hinshaw has to say about it later on today and whether there's anyone else there to, to speak to all of this. Coming up in our next hour, we'll talk about uh, where things stand uh, with uh, single-event sports betting. Canada appears to be on the verge of legalizing it, should we? Also, uh, coming up after 1130, as mentioned, we'll talk about whether Supreme Court justices should be legally required to be bilingual. It's Rob Breckenridge with you on the Chorus Radio Network. Here we go. Welcome to this hour of the program.
Rob Breckenridge with you, sitting in on the Chorus Radio Network for today and the next couple of weeks. Much more still to get to here today. Coming up after 1130, we'll talk about official bilingualism. It's often been a sore spot, uh, I think, in Alberta. Uh, maybe not the concept of bilingualism, but but the way it's it's been enforced, or maybe how it's come to, to represent a certain approach toward Quebec. But we're going to look specifically at the question of whether Supreme Court justices should be required by law to be bilingual. And that's a change the federal government is uh, now proposing. So we'll talk about that coming up after 1130. Uh, but off the top in this hour, the conversation uh, around uh, single event sports betting, which is still illegal in Canada under the criminal code of Canada. You might be wondering, well, Rob, I mean, I can go buy a sports select ticket. Yeah, you can. Uh, parlay betting is, is legal in Canada. Single event sports betting is not. You might be saying, well, Rob, I can go on to any number of websites and bet on events, which true. Yes, you can. And that's part of the argument here that a lot of this is happening offshore. So why do we maintain this prohibition, given that in various forms, people are engaging in this activity? The landscape has shifted a lot as well in recent years. A pretty important Supreme Court decision in the U.S. has led to some big changes there. Increasingly, professional sports organizations of the big leagues in North America, which previously were against this, have embraced this change. So the attempt to legalize uh, single event sports betting has come close in the past, but has failed. Is this time going to be different? There are actually two pieces of legislation currently before the House of Commons, a government bill and a private member's bill, both aiming to uh, amend the criminal code and legalize this practice. So joining us to talk a bit more about where things stand and whether this time is actually going to be different. Very pleased to welcome to the program uh, here this morning, Paul Burns. He is uh, with the Canadian Gaming Association. Paul, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Uh, so first of all, and, and help us understand, or at least as, as you understand it, is there any significant difference between these two bills and, and why it is that there are two bills currently before the House on this? Well, I'll, I'll give you some history. Um, uh, about a year ago, uh, Bill C-218 was introduced by Saskatchewan MP Kevin Waugh uh, as a private member's bill. Um, due to the pandemic and the House suspending the rules, there really was no private member's belt dealt with until this past fall. Um, but at the same time, the government, sensing that there was a uh, a lot of pressure coming from various sectors, including professional sports, uh, when they were closed down, is being able to come out of lockdown and, and the, this and the impacts of COVID that both the professional sports leagues and the gaming industry has that, that, that's be made a priority. And um, the government responded at the end of November, bringing forth their own Bill C-13, um, and it's interesting because government bills tend to move a little quicker sometimes. We thought this was a good time. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, over the last couple months, and just once in December, once in January, bill, the government bill C-13 was put up for scheduled for debate, but then at the last minute they pulled it off the agenda. Um, C-218 kept moving through the process, and, and that came up for a vote last week. Uh, was overwhelmingly endorsed by the members of the House of Commons, 303 to 15. 
Um, the prime minister showed up to vote for it. That's many of the ministers and on the opposition. It was kind of party. a weird moment, by the way. People may have seen that yeah. clip of the prime minister voting. It was, it was a it little was. weird, but he did uh, vote yes. He did vote yes. He did vote yes. Um, but subsequent to the vote, um, uh, the government um, actually sought to suspend the consideration of C13. They asked for a ruling the next day from the speaker who uh, on the similarities between the two bill and the, the difference is really in one measure that there was a an, an addition to the government bill that would prohibit single event wagering on on horse racing so you can only use paramutual wagering to bet on horse racing that's what the industry had asked for the government had done it in their bill so that's the only difference the speaker ruled that the bills were similar and that C-13 could not proceed as long as 218 was on the order paper. So we have C-218 mm-hmm. as the bill. It starts in committee tomorrow. Um, and C-13 will sit in abeyance. Um, if it's not needed, it will just die on the order paper at some point. Oh, so we're down well, to yeah. one bill, and we're moving forward with C-218, which is Kevin Waugh, conservative member from Saskatchewan, his bill. And... Um, with the government, full support of the government, um, the 303 votes was, uh, and there's been very little, I think, in the House of Commons that has garnered 303 votes. So we're quite uh, uh, encouraged by that. And the committee process will carry on in the next uh, few weeks uh, and hope to have the bill passed by the House and into the Senate uh, sometime in early April, if all goes well. So right. now, uh, that's the process. Yes. Right. Yes. Now, I mean, it shows that things have certainly changed this time around because previous attempts have either not made it out of the House or, or have died in the Senate. So talk about why it seems that, that just the whole conversation has shifted. What's different this time? Uh, the, the biggest difference has, has been um, the last bill to pass House of Commons was in 2012, um, and it died in the Senate because the Senate refused to vote on it. The this time, it's it's really the professional sports leagues have, have clearly changed their opinion on sports wagering, in large part because of the federal prohibition in the United States on sports wagering was struck down by the Supreme Court. And what you've seen is a rapid expansion um, across the states. Uh, there's probably about 20 jurisdictions now. Uh, it's been a little over two years since that was struck down, so there's been... Uh, they've been moving fairly quickly. Uh, the for all the professional leagues have really embraced through marketing partnerships and data sh- selling agreements, um, and finding a new revenue stream for themselves. Uh, it's taken off uh, quite dramatically, and so the interest is continuing to rise by sports fans and, and people wanting to bet on sports. And so we're continuing to see an increase in activity and. It's it's clear that um, sports wagering, because of the volume of the legal wagering done by Canadians through offshore online sites or books, sports books run by organized crime, that there's a, it's an activity that's out there and it needs to be regulated and brought under control. So I think everybody is now um, in the, on the same page from provinces, labor groups, business, sports leagues, amateur sport groups. Um, it's pretty much universal that it's time to get this done, get it into a better regulated environment where we can protect customers, protect athletes. Right. And that, that would fall to the provinces, right? It seems like the federal government's role here is, is simply to remove it from the criminal code. I mean, is, is that pretty much it? 
It is, because in, back in 1985, um, the federal government basically ceded all involvement of gaming to the provinces. And actually that was done really to facilitate um, the province of Alberta trying to do uh, some lottery activities and to support the Calgary Winter Olympics uh, and the day. And so there was a, that was a motivation, and that still holds. So the federal government really, the criminal code, it's, there's overarching laws against gaming reside in the criminal code. There has been a precedent back in 1998. There was a request by the provinces to permit dice games because you couldn't play craps because dice were outlawed. Um, that change was made by the then liberal government. Um, and this is, so this is the mechanism the provinces have. Unfortunately, this time we've had to be, the provinces have had to ask for now about 11 years, 12 years, <laughs> been asking for this change. Um, so hopefully we'll get this done. But that's really what they're doing. They're enabling the provinces then to decide within their jurisdictions how they wish to offer sports betting. And some, and the provinces are evaluating those opportunities now and how they wish to do it. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, provinces might take different approaches to this, and that's fine, and that's how it's designed in, in Canada anyway. But, you know, the point about you know, letting this opportunity pass us by once again, what, what do you see as the risk of, of Canada being left behind as other countries, especially the United States, move to, to continue to, to regulate this? Well, there's a number of, one, you still allow an illegal bookmaking operation to flourish. And there's the Criminal Intelligence Service of Canada, their annual report from 2019 talked about motorcycle gangs using online gaming and other gaming activities to help launder money to funding their illicit activities. There is that. There is the real one we were hoping to tell in the committee and see told is that there's lost opportunity for Canadian companies. We have a lot of members of the Canadian Gaming Association that covers media group out of Halifax, for example, covers.com. They provide sports embedding information and data. They provide it to newspaper publications and media outlets around the world. They have their own site where they do um, on sports betting, they have staff. They can expand their business in Halifax if if this is passed, because they know they can do more business. Uh, a company called Fans Unite is a sports betting platform technology provider out of Vancouver. Really, they start up the group there. They can hire more people in Canada in technology jobs if this passes. The Score, which is probably the most well-known sports book, is a Canadian. Book mm-hmm. operated um, by Score Media and the Levy Chamley. Uh, it's an app that a lot of Canadians have on their phone for sports information. They would like to run their sports book in Canada. They currently, they're based in Toronto, but they operate in markets in the United States. So there's real opportunity for Canadian business. There is real um, opportunity for communities and gaming uh, operators who have been severely impacted by COVID to come out of this with a new product potentially that can help drive patrons in to a sports bar environment in the casino um, and help give us access to a product we haven't have been able to have, though Canadians can still get it illegally. And so there's a whole host of benefits. Um, there's greater consumer protection because I get calls from lots of people who have problems getting their money out of online sites in various parts of the world. Um, there's protection for players through responsible gaming programs that come with that regulated environment. So 
it's there's a, a lot of reasons to do this, and there's a lot of and it's a lot of lost opportunity if it's not again. And it's only because it's not going away; it's continuing to grow. And we need a simple amendment to allow the provinces then to take and do what they do. And they've done well over the last three decades. They've been running and overseeing the gaming business is that they will take and do what's best for the offering for their jurisdiction. We'll keep a close eye on it, see how things play out in the weeks ahead. Uh, much more at uh, CanadianGaming.ca. Paul, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Appreciate it. I appreciate you having me. Thanks again. All right, cheers. Paul Burns, President and CEO of the Canadian Gaming Association. we got to take a break here. Plenty more still to get to. Rob Breckenridge with you here on the Chorus Radio Network. Hey, this is cool. On the topic of gaming... Uh, the Alberta government uh, just announcing today what they're calling jackpots for junior hockey. Presented by REMAX, a joint 50-50 draw launched today by the Western Hockey League and the Alberta Junior Hockey League. We'll share proceeds with Alberta's five WHL teams and 15 AJHL teams to help offset revenues lost because of the pandemic and suspension of play. So the WHL about to get going, the AJHL set to get going in March. And so this announced today, and that'll certainly help those teams. Few minutes here before the bottom of the hour. Let's go back to the phones, and uh, we've got Richard, uh, who's been oh, waiting. Good morning, hey, sir. Thanks for taking my call. You're welcome. Uh, can you hear me? Oh, yeah. Regarding the uh, Grace Life Church and, the, and now the uh, the other one further south, um, it's kind of blown me away because as an Indigenous person, I, I would confidently say that if, say if that was a Native gathering, like a round dance or a powwow, or if it was a mosque. Would uh, would we be treated the same way, given that privilege of no charges? I mean, not if, but when deaths occur from from them not following COVID protocol. I mean, that's going to be a super spreader, most likely. Um, and you know, it's not about you know when I saw the clip on on Global News, Mr. James Coates. It's not about the religion. This guy, he's he's being empowered. This is about his ego. This is this megalomania, and if people like that are left unchecked, I don't know if you remember 1978 uh, People's Temple Jonestown. You know, Reverend Jim Jones. I mean, this is where mm-hmm. it could go if people left like that. Why aren't there charges? And again, not if there will be deaths probably from that from that congregation super spreading. Why are they not being charged? You know, they need to start, and RCMP saying investigate, investigate. Well, what's there to investigate? They're breaking the rules. They're gonna cause a super spreader. People will die. This person needs to be criminally charged, at least criminal negligence causing causing death, you know, something to that effect that, that's not right. And again, it's, it's just to me privilege, and if that was, my people or or the Muslim nation, I'm pretty sure there would have been charges. Paddy wagons would have been lined up outside, but people like that need to be checked really quick because we know where that goes. But thank you so much. Richard, appreciate the phone call. I mean, look, it's a tough situation. And, and again, it's one of those areas where, you know, you got some voices saying the province is overreacting and, and others saying, why aren't we doing more? Uh, you know, the pastor, by his own choice, has, has opted to not follow any of these injunctions and is in the remand center at the moment as a result. So what comes of this? Got a text here that says, Rob, I find it interesting this church adheres to the civically imposed fire code limits on the number of people who can be in that building, yet ignores the civically imposed limits by health officials. I wonder what basis the pastoral team feels that God approves 
uh, of their compliance with one civic order but not the other. I mean, look, a lot of this feels political, not theological. And, and maybe it makes more sense to look at it through that lens. I think the good news is, for the most part, faith communities of all different kinds understand the balance the government is trying to strike here. They're not looking to be a part of the problem. The government has tried to all along err on the side of allowing some semblance of, of religious gathering. But this is obviously going too far, I think. All right. Much more still to come. We're back with more right after this. Welcome back. Rob Reganridge with you. Uh, the topic of official bilingualism, maybe not the most popular topic uh, here in Alberta. And not that Albertans are against the idea of Canada as a bilingual country, but maybe what official bilingualism in practice ha has at times meant, or maybe how it pertains to how a, a certain province is treated. But look, I mean, we are an officially bilingual country, and, and that is going to have some implications. Uh, the federal government is uh, moving to, to make some pretty significant changes, though, to the Official Languages Act. They say there's a need to protect and promote French in Canada. One of their proposals I, I wanted to zero in on here, because this has come up before, and it, it raises some really fascinating questions. One of the proposals is to enshrine into law the requirement that Supreme Court of Canada justices be bilingual. Now, the, the, the liberals have already kind of gone in that direction by making it clear that that's their preference. But this is going to a whole other level by requiring it by law. So what are the potential issues that this all, all raises here? Joining us to, to explore this in a little more detail, very pleased to welcome the program uh, here this morning, Emmett McFarlane. Associate Professor of the Department of Political Science at the University of Waterloo. He's the author of Governing from the Bench, the Supreme Court of Canada, and the Judicial Role, his forthcoming book, Constitutional Pariah, reference uh, regarding Senate reform and the future of Parliament. Emmett McFarland, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So th this is interesting, and I, I know for, for watchers uh, of this kind of stuff, this definitely stood out as a significant announcement, because we, we've kind of gone through this debate a few times. So what was your reaction, when, first of all, when you heard that uh, this was going to be among the proposals? Well, it's a bit surprised, because the Prime Minister has thus far exercised his own discretion to make appointments by appointing only fluently bilingual judges to the Supreme Court already. Um, and there's a serious constitutional barrier to to actually making it the law in that the Supreme Court ruled in 2014 that any changes to the eligibility requirements for Supreme Court judges would require unanimous provincial consent under our amending formula. Um, and this is because the amending formula refers to the composition of the Supreme Court and the relevant sections of the Supreme Court Act were deemed by the court at that time to be effectively constitutionally entrenched, which is a long way of saying, I'm not clear on how the government thinks Parliament can enact this law um, if, if it indeed requires a constitutional amendment. Um, they, in their release, indicated that they are taking into account the relevant jurisprudence and that's that's exactly what they're talking about um, but they seem to suggest that they can make a change to the official languages act with respect to the supreme court not have to change the supreme court act and therefore everything's okay um, but that almost certainly would be deemed an unconstitutional workaround so there's 
a constitutional barrier here that I, I'm very curious to see what the legislation will actually look like and how it will address that. And then, there's, of course, there's the practical issue of mandating bilingualism for Supreme Court judges that we've, we've talked about before, that particularly in the Western provinces, um, there isn't a large pool of uh, bilingual jurists to draw from. Um, and then add to the, that to the fact that this prime minister, I honestly believe, would love to appoint an indigenous person to the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Um, and the official bilingualism requirement is also a barrier to that, because in a lot of cases, you're basically requiring an indigenous candidate to be effectively trilingual, because many of them may know um, their own, the, the language of their own nation and, mm-hmm. and English, um, and then we're expecting them to also know French on top of that. Um, so there, there are kind of legal and practical difficulties, I think. Yeah, those are some interesting points, right? So there are kind of two questions, I guess, you know, the, the merits of, of um, a bilingual requirement and, and the constitutional practicalities of, of making that change, and, and both are, are very relevant here. What about, I mean, given that it is the Supreme Court of Canada, right, and that expectation that whether you are uh, Francophone, whether you are an Anglophone, uh, that you're able to have your day in court, as, as it were. And so how do we ensure then that uh, with bilingualism as the backdrop, that the Supreme Court of Canada is able to provide essentially equal justice? Uh, are we able to do that without a bilingualism requirement? Yeah, and it, I think it comes down to how you think that ought to work. So at the institutional level, there's no question, and I don't think anyone would disagree with the idea that the court itself needs to be a bilingual institution. Um, we have always had uh, at least some francophones as members of the court, and and most members of the court have been bilingual, at least in the modern era, although there are always there have always been a handful of exceptions to that rule. The court also has the best translators, along with Parliament, the best translators in the country. Um, and so for some people to basically say, well, the court is functionally bilingual. It can operate in both languages. Um, it can conduct hearings in both languages. Even when there's that one or two judges on the court who struggle with French, they can have, um, they, they have services available to help them. They can have francophone or bilingual law clerks to help go through some of the written material. And it all works fine. Other people say, and I think they have a valid viewpoint, other people say that, you know, working with translators and getting assistance just isn't the same, and that Canadians have the right to conduct a hearing without translation with the expectation that all nine judges can work fluently in either language. And that it's that latter point that I think the federal government is looking to to change. They're they're proposing to remove what has been an exemption for the Supreme Court on that on that issue of, of an expectation of, of competence by the individual judges. When it comes to Bilingualism, or I guess the question then, if if this is a legal requirement, like are, are we talking about completely, totally fluent in both languages? Is it possible to, you know, to put that into law? What the expectation or requirement is? Well, not to me. That's always been one of the tricky things, right? Because uh, we've had bilingual judges 
appointed as standing practice. We've had judges who weren't necessarily fluently bilingual. Um, you know, I think Chief Just, former Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin is a good example of that, someone whose French improved after she got on the court. And so recognizing that for many people, and including occasionally some of the, the Francophone judges, their, their knowledge of that second language is never necessarily going to be as good or as perfectly fluent um, uh, as, as, it, as their first language. So what, so what is the expectation here? When we refer to functional fluency, it's basically an expectation that someone can follow an oral argument without getting lost, that they have a, a reasonable level of competency in reading and perhaps even in writing in that second language. Um, the idea that you would we would limit this to people who are perfectly fluent in both languages, I think would make the practical reality of, of finding qualified people even more difficult, uh, at least when it comes to certain provinces like, like the Western provinces. Right. Well, it's the thing. I mean, yeah, Beverly McLaughlin has, has taken steps, some steps to learn French, but, you know, could she reasonably sit down and write an entire ruling in, in French? Probably not. And I mean, is, and if you say if that's the, the standard, then we're really limiting the pool, aren't we? Yeah, and so it's not, again, it's not clear whether, you know, I've always assumed when this discussion comes up that we're talking about kind of a functional fluency, not, right. not seeking perfection. But, but as we've seen, that itself has brought some challenges. I honestly believe um, that this government would have appointed an Indigenous judge by now, if not for uh, this, this language requirement. So we shall see then, because obviously the government has the, the purview, the prerogative, the jurisdiction uh, to, to make changes, changes it sees fit to the Official Languages Act, but changes to the Supreme Court are not typically done through the, the Official Languages Act. Well, so and that, bear that in mind that it's not, you know, before that 2014 decision, it wasn't clear that the Supreme Court Act was part of the Constitution. That was a novel decision by the court. And so it, if the court's actually going to be consistent it's possible that changes to the Official Languages Act that affect the composition of the Supreme Court in this way would also be deemed constitutional and require thus a constitutional amendment. So I would, I would actually argue, based on, based on what we know that the Supreme Court has said, that the federal government cannot do this unilaterally. The, the parliament cannot do this unilaterally. It, that what it's trying to do would be amend the constitution without provincial consent. Um, and so, again, we haven't seen the specific legislation yet and what, how it'll be worded, what it'll look like. But if it's doing what it says, <laughs> what they say it's going to do, I don't think what they're proposing is constitutional. Right, and which isn't to say that it can never be done, but just like any other constitutional change, there there's a formula for doing that. Yeah, and so what they would need to do in this case is get every provincial legislative assembly on board. And I'm not sure, given... <laughs> I'm not sure that's in the cards, um, because every time constitutional change has been raised... Quebec has been consistent, for example, that it will not agree to any constitutional amendment absent either more powers for Quebec or recognition of Quebec as a distinct society in the Constitution. 
Um, and that once you once you kind of hold the Constitution hostage on one issue, in exchange for all these other issues, the proposal dies on the table. That that's been the legacy of the 1980s and 1990s in this country, that we are basically scared of opening the Constitution. Yes, that's very true. We'll see how this all plays out. Uh, Professor McFarland, appreciate your insight uh, on all of this. Thanks for making some time for us here. Thank you for having me. All right, take care. Uh, that is uh, Emmett McFarland, Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science uh, at the University of Waterloo, someone who focuses on constitutional law, the Supreme Court. Uh, his uh, latest book, Governing from the Bench, the Supreme Court of Canada and the Judicial Role, and his uh, forthcoming book, Constitutional Pariah. So, as he sees it, and uh, he's not alone, that if the liberals want to change the rules around Supreme Court justice or to make any changes to the Supreme Court, you're talking about a constitutional change. And that means we go to the formula and it's all spelled out for how you reopen and make changes to the Constitution. And yes, it's all but a guarantee then that it would be a complete non-starter. Now, the liberals, it was certainly their prerogative uh, to, to have certain preferences. They're the ones who choose the Supreme Court justices. So if they want to give preference uh, to bilingual judges, then they're entitled to do so. Right. The, the process of selecting a Supreme Court justice is inherently subjective. Who you think is a good candidate might not be who somebody else thinks is a good candidate. The government obviously has to decide they're going to use their own criteria. And that's fine. That's how it is. So the liberals want to keep appointing bilingual justices. They can do that. You know, as Emmett McFarland points out, the Liberals certainly talked a good game about more fundamental change in terms of appointing uh, an Indigenous judge to the Supreme Court. That hasn't happened, probably because of this focus on, on bilingualism. Look, we can have judge, uh, judges in, in this country who go out of their way to learn both official language, who have some degree of fluency in both official languages. But if we make it a legal requirement that you be completely and totally fluent in both official languages, we're going to have a really tiny pool of, of judges to draw from. And the Supreme Court of Canada, I would argue, is, is too important for that. So we'll see how the liberals decide to approach this, and they might be getting into some constitutional tricky ground here. We shall see. All right. Our number here in Calgary, 403-974-8255. In Edmonton, 780-496-0063. My name is Rob Breckenridge, sitting in today and for the next couple of weeks here on the Chorus Radio Network. All right, bit of time here. Let's get back to the phones here, shall we? And uh, we'll say hello to Norm. Norm, go ahead. Hi, Rob. Uh, just quickly on Grace Life Church, uh, I'm atheist, but this is not a theological. It's arguably not even political I, I just want everyone to go to their website and read their public statement for perspective because it's actually very moving and very um, uh, actual, factual, I should say. And we've got the media, or not the media, uh, just on a news burp there about a half hour ago, someone speaking on behalf of the interfaith organization talking about how you shouldn't uh, let your religious views guide you like this it has nothing to do with religion but we're getting this message on our airwaves and she's very misinformed that woman who's speaking on behalf of the interfaith organization but really the public statement on their website before anyone judges them they need to read that that's all i have to say 
Okay. Norm, I appreciate the phone call. Like I say, uh, I don't know this is going to be resolved anytime soon, but uh, again, I mean, my goal here is that we can continue to move in the right direction, that we can continue to be in a situation where the easing of restrictions is feasible. And it would be a real disservice to everybody if we ended up having to backslide here and, and take a step backward. Uh, because some felt that they were above the rules or they didn't want to follow the rules, right? We're, we're moving in the right direction. There's certainly all kinds of light at the end of the tunnel here. So I, I just hope we don't screw this up. All right, welcome back. Rob Breckenridge filling in for, well, I, I don't know, but I do know that Angela Cocott is uh, filling in for Rob Breckenridge, <laughs> and uh, she'll be in after 1230 this afternoon. Hello, Angela. Hey, Rob. It, it reminds me of the days I used to watch soap operas. The role of Rob Breckenridge is being right. played by Angela Cocott for the next two weeks because the role of the next host of the morning is being played by Rob Breckenridge. How are you doing? Uh, well, doing good. <laughs> doing good. So speaking of soap operas, I understand you're talking uh, TV shows, comfort TV shows. We, we talk a lot about comfort food during the pandemic. In those early days, everyone was baking bread and making casseroles. Well, over the last number of months, a lot of people have turned to comfort reruns. And uh, I mean, I don't want to put you on the spot, but if there was a show or a movie you've watched more than once... What would it be? Uh, well, in terms of movies, I would say the movie I've watched the most, and I will watch it whenever it's on TV at any point in the movie, and it's uh, the movie Goodfellas. Oh, Goodfellas. Yeah, I think I've heard you quote Goodfellas a few, <laughs> few times. And so, I mean, if it comes to TV shows, I want people to start thinking of maybe a TV show that they've watched. I can go way back to, well, you know what? I'll wait until around 1230 to share my comfort rerun. But the reason we're doing it, you know, in unpredictable times, we like to go to something that is predictable. Um, along with that, I'll also be talking about the R factor. We talk about so many different numbers when it comes to hospitalization rates, positivity yeah. rates. We don't talk a lot about the uh, R number and the R factor. And I'll be speaking with one researcher who says policymakers health officials should be keeping a closer eye on the R factor. And I know you've talked about it a lot, but uh, a bit of background on that and why it's so important during this time. Sounds good. Thanks, Ange. Ange will be in uh, 12.30 to 3.30 this afternoon. And by the way, just to look ahead a little bit later on this afternoon, uh, Dr. Dina Hinshaw is going to be providing an update at 4 p.m. today. So if you, you tune into those, uh, just uh, make note of that. It's going to be a little bit later today, 4 o'clock, an update from the Chief Medical Officer of Health. All right, so looking ahead to uh, this summer, and I think there's certainly a hope, maybe not universal, but certainly a hope that uh, the Calgary Stampede is going to be back. It's such a, a big part of the city and such a big event for the sport of rodeo. Sport that certainly has its, its followers and has its detractors, as I'm sure we're all well aware. And, and certainly, I think, you know, in fairness of, of rodeo, that, that animal welfare is a priority. But there is an interesting question then. And is it, is it answerable? How do the animals feel about their participation? Obviously, they're, they're not logically assessing the sport of rodeo. But what are their reactions when it comes to these events that they participate in? 
So it, it is a question that I think we can understand at some level, and it's the subject of a really interesting new study published in the journal Applied Animal Behavior Science. And, and it adds some really interesting insight into all of this. Joining us to talk more about this research, we're pleased to welcome to the program uh, here this afternoon, Ed Pager who is uh, Anderson Chisholm, Chair of Animal Behavior and Welfare, member of the Calgary Stampede's Animal Care Advisory Panel. Ed, so great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Rob. Good afternoon. Uh, give us a bit more of the background on, on this, this research, because, you know, this kind of came together over, over a long period of time, and it was quite a considerable effort here. Tell us more about it. Well, I first became interested in the issue of um, uh, the welfare of animals at the Stampede when I came to Calgary about 10 years ago now. And I was really struck by the different perspectives that I was hearing about the Calgary Stampede and about the welfare of animals at the rodeo. We had, on one hand, people who follow the rodeo and think the animals are well looked after, believe the animals are or born to buck and, and, and like to perform. And we have other people uh, in the public who were saying that the animals are very mistreated. Uh, it's, a, it's a terrible sport, that the animals don't like it at all, and that the welfare is, is very, very poor. It seemed to me that that was an interesting question because as an animal behavior scientist, what I do is actually try to study the behavior of animals in these <clears throat> types of situations. And I thought it was a question that we might be able to answer, a question about uh, do animals find performing at the rodeo to be aversive? It wasn't nearly as easy as we hoped. It took quite a long time to kind of generate the project and develop the project. Um, but, uh, you know, we, needed, we need to have some data to fill in the, 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 the discussion around the use of animals in rodeo, as well as the use of animals for all types of other activities as yeah. well. Yeah, it, 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 I mean, it's a fascinating question to me. And, and, you know, I could take the example of my dog. You know, my dog likes to play fetch. It's pretty clear that that's an activity that my dog is enjoying based on, you know, kind of what we understand about animal behavior and, and how certain emotions, I guess, if it's right to call it that, are, are manifested. So that's a real simplistic kind of example of that. So when it comes to, to say, horses, for example, there's, there's a need to sort of have a baseline understanding of horse behavior and how that manifests. And then I guess to go a step further and, and try to examine that in the context of these events, I mean, how do you go about measuring something like this? Well, it's really interesting. The whole area of animal welfare science and the areas around the behavior of equine animals of horses um, has really developed over the past you know, 20, 30 years. We understand much better certain indicators of behavior. What we did is um, we, well, we actually looked at about 116 horses over three years. We looked at uh, novice animals in the saddleback, uh, saddle bronc and bareback, as well as experienced animals in both those events as well. And we looked at how the animals were behaving when they were being loaded into the uh, into the chute. So all the way from the back pens where they were being handled and moved up into the actual bucking chutes right before they perform. And that's kind of where we stopped. We kind of followed the animals all the way along there. We know that certain behaviors are indicating that animals are more reactive or associated with fear and stress. So we actually focused on those type, specific types of behaviors. So what you can do is you can look at a large range of behaviors, such as moving back and forth within a shoot, whether they're tail swishing, whether they're uh, defecating, uh, they'll show lip chewing, they'll increase their eye white when it's associated with fear, they'll start pawing at the ground, kicking, head tossing, you know, 
rearing in the shoots, those types of things. And we think those are all kind of escalating in terms of the reactivity and the amount of, of fear the animals might be experiencing. One other point I wanted to mention as well, because, uh, you know, this involved uh, Dr. Temple Grandin, uh, among other people, and, and certainly I think people would be familiar with, with Dr. Grandin, renowned animal welfare expert. So just a point on that and, and involving Dr. Grandin and, and some of the others who were involved in this. Well, I've known Temple Grandin for a number of years, over 20 years now. We've served on numerous committees. Um, I was a professor down in the States and served on McDonald's committees with her and worked with, uh, was able to uh, be with her on some of her audits of different slaughter plants and things like that. And when I started thinking about the question dealing with the rodeo animals uh, and the movement of these animals, uh, Temple was the obvious person to ask for advice as she had done a lot of work on how easily animals move through a slaughter plant system and the transportation of animals, etc. And in fact, she came up to the stampede and visited and we kind of designed the study together. And a lot of the scoring that we used and the approaches that we use are exactly the type of things that Temple did uh, and some of her work on on uh, slaughter plants and the movement of the animals there to to kind of assess how well the animals were moving through the system. Okay, so let's look at what this study found then. Um, so what what are the conclusions here? What what can we conclude about animal behavior in this context and, and how they feel or what they're experiencing during rodeo events? So what we found was that when it came to the loading of the animals, uh, we found that about uh, 70% of the horses actually balked. That means they were difficult to move into the system easily. But really, they only did that uh, only really did that once. Um, we found that most of the behavior of these horses, was, of the balking behavior, the, of the difficulty in moving forward, was really due to the presence of people or due to the design of the equipment. So um, sometimes you have equipment that has uh, poor sight lines for animals, so the animals have to, you know, if they can't see where they're going, if they have to make a sharp right-handed turn, they don't really know what's uh, what they're turning into, um, and so that m- m- will make them slow down. The other interesting component, though, was that the presence of people, people hanging around, also made the animals uh, slow down and balk and not move easily. Um, you always have to remember that although these animals are used at you know, 10 to 12 rodeos a year, for most of the time, they're out at a ranch in Hannah, Alberta, not really seeing an awful lot of people. So a lot of these animals... Um, aren't used to having a lot of people around. So when you have people near the loading area that are there to maybe help move the animals forward uh, in case there's some difficulty or they're just uh, watching the loading procedure, um, it's actually making the loading much more difficult. And so that's one of the, that's one of our findings is that the presence of the people in the design uh, is really, uh, is a really important component of that. We also found that the behaviors um, when the animals were in the chutes, the most reactive behaviors were when the cowboys were actually adjusting the tack or putting tack on the animals. And we don't really know clearly whether this is some sort of um, anticipatory behavior or if it's some sort of escape behavior. I mean, the animals may be anticipating bucking, looking forward to it. The tack adjustment may be making the animal maybe kind of misinterpreted as a um, as a performance cue. It's time to go. I got to get ready to go. Or they may not like it very much at all. Um, so, but it is very very difficult to know because of the of the of, of the different types of motivations that might be involved. But what we were really struck by as well is that we don't see a lot of 
consistent escape attempts. Uh, mm-hmm. We don't see animals balking numerous times. We don't see animals trying to get out of the chutes. We don't see a lot of reactivity at all in the chutes unless there's people around that's getting very close to the, to the actual bucking event. The other thing we found in the study was that the um, experience of the animals made a, made a huge difference. The stampede was fantastic in terms of allowing us to have access to records uh, so we could look at how experienced these animals were at the stampede. And what we found is that the, um, the more experienced animals show less reactivity than the novice animals. Um, and we think this is probably due to habituation. The animals learn uh, what's going to happen to them. Or the other component could be that it could be something like learned helplessness, which is a behavior animals show when they don't have control over their environment and their situation, and there's nothing they can do about it. They basically kind of give up. I mean, the same thing happens with, with in human psychology as well, something called learned helplessness. However, <clears throat> we don't really think it's learned helplessness because the animals were so reactive when the t- when people were by them and, and the attack was being put on. Usually, if it was learned helplessness, the animal wouldn't show very much at all. So we do think that there's some learning going on, and the animals are actually habituating to, um, to being... In, uh, at these events. So, when we take these findings in, is is are there ways in which you know some of this could be implemented? What what are the the implications then for you know for for how the rodeo conducts business? Yeah, so these are things that, many of these things are things that can be addressed, right? I mean, when you talk about difficulty in loading or having a lot of people around, you can try to control that to some extent. And the, and the, and the, the Stampede's already made some effort to do that. Um, uh, they have put up a large kind of a, a large tent structure to cut when the animals are being loaded so that the the animals aren't distracted by a lot of the people that are up in the stands area or on the bridges just back in back behind the uh, entrance to the to the arena so that's really helped in terms of uh, calming the animals down um, when it comes to design features it's kind of more of an equipment call so uh, we'll be chatting with the uh, animal care advisory panel and the calgary stampede executive about what type of changes could be made there when it comes to putting attack on the animals um, that is part of the part of the event there's not a lot you can do there, but you can probably decrease the number of people that are hanging around the heads of these animals uh, prior to the just just prior to the um, to the performance to the bucking be, uh, occurring, um, and kind of try to limit that as much as possible. All right, and I guess we'll also wait. Hopefully, good news regarding the stampede itself this summer. We'll see what ha- what um, fate has in store for that. But Ed, we'll leave it there for now. Appreciate you making some time for us here today. Perfect. Thank you very much for the opportunity. All the best. Take care. Uh, there you go. That is uh, Ed Pager, uh, Anderson Chisholm, uh, Chair in Animal Behavior and Welfare, Manager, or rather member of the Calgary Stampede's Animal Care Advisory Board. So uh, really interesting look at, you know, try to understand as best you can, you know, the experience of all of this on, on the animals themselves and, and to learn from that and, and make improvements to the sport. Now, look, I mean, you know, those who want rodeo abolished, that's, you know, I don't think they'll be convinced. But, you know, kudos on, on the stampede for taking some leadership on this issue. All right, we'll take a quick time out here, back to wind things down on a Monday afternoon right after this. Welcome back. Rob Rickenridge with you here, 770 CHQR. So again, and, and I know there's been a lot of questions, well, really ever since, uh, you know, the news broke that uh, Danielle was, was going to uh, move on, uh, to step down from the show and move on to other things. So what was going to happen next and perhaps then some some curiosity heading into this morning uh so i'm going to be filling in for uh, the next two weeks i'll be back at my time slot starting monday march 8th so what will you hear in this time slot on monday march 8th well 
I don't know. To be honest, I actually don't know. Uh, perhaps there are some people who do. I guess the best I can say at this point is to stay tuned for more on that. So for those uh, still wondering. Uh, by the way, a couple of things we're watching this afternoon here. Uh, it looks as though once question period is wrapped up in Ottawa, uh, a vote is set to take place on a conservative motion. Now, again, motions aren't really binding necessarily. It's sort of just Parliament expressing its will on an issue or its its opinion. But this this is a pretty important one. Uh, a vote taking place in Parliament this afternoon favor of a conservative motion that would formally label China's treatment of Uyghur Muslims as a genocide. Now, there are already numerous Canadian political leaders and, and politicians from all parties, mind you, who say, yes, look, it's time to, to start referring to it as that because that's what it is. The United States has taken that position. Obviously, there are implications for all of this. If we recognize that a genocide is taking place, international conventions, uh, conventions compel us to respond. What is this government prepared to do? It appears as though the government's inclination is to just put its head in the sand and, and not address this, not take a stand, not even acknowledge uh, all of this. Uh, word that uh, the prime minister and his cabinet will abstain from this vote. So not even the, the courage to take a stand one way or another. They're going to abstain from the vote. Now, that's the cabinet. So it sounds as though liberal MPs who are not in cabinet are still going to have an opportunity to, to have a say on this. What's interesting, though, is that this has uh, all party support. All opposition leaders have indicated that their parties are going to vote in favor of this motion. So it's going to come down to how many liberal MPs are prepared to vote for this. So this could prove to be pretty interesting. Now, again, the obvious hypocrisy here is that in 2019, the prime minister seemed pretty comfortable with declaring that Canada was guilty of genocide and not a historic genocide, but an ongoing genocide, which came out of the, the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission and implementing uh, all of those recommendations. You know, look, as, as I said at the time, and a lot of people were saying at the time, is that really helpful to reconciliation? Is that really helpful to us moving forward to say that there is an ongoing genocide in Canada? You could probably make a credible historical argument that uh, something akin to a, a cultural genocide happened, that maybe that's one way of describing uh, the approaches uh, of the past with regard to residential schools, as an example, and, and other things you can point to. But it just didn't seem to have a lot of credibility with a lot of Canadians to say that Canada is involved in an ongoing genocide. Yet the prime minister acknowledged that point. And then we ended up having a federal election where nobody talked about it and how surreal that was. That hang on, Canada's involved in an ongoing genocide, and yet we're going to have a federal election where we talk about free camping? Really? So it felt disconnected from reality at the time, and so now we've got this bizarre situation where uh, the Prime Minister is refusing to acknowledge an actual ongoing genocide. But he certainly set a precedence for lowering the bar when it comes to applying that term. And you might have heard his comments last week where... 
He's worried for the, uh, that exact reason, that we got to be careful about using that word. We don't want to water down the word. But, well, maybe you should have thought of that a couple of years ago. So it'll be interesting to see what comes of this. Again, it's, it's not a binding motion necessarily, but it, uh, you know, certainly China, I think, will be paying attention. So if this passes, even if the cabinet abstains, you know, there, there's likely to be some fallout from that. But we can't allow that sort of pressure, that sort of bullying, to deter us from acknowledging the reality of what's going on there. Now, the other possible implication here is, what does it mean then for Canada's participation in the Olympics? 12 months from now, February of 2022, Beijing is set to host the world at the uh, Winter Games. Can we in good conscience go? Can we send Canadian athletes there? And especially if we acknowledge that the country hosting the Olympics is guilty of an ongoing genocide, how on earth can we be a party to this event and, and them hosting it? So there are implications on that, that side of it. But, uh, you know, we got we to gotta show some principle. We got to show some, some backbone when it comes to these matters. And uh, unfortunately, it doesn't appear as though the government's prepared to do that at this point. So we'll see how that vote plays out this afternoon. We'll luckily have uh, more on that uh, coming up on the program tomorrow. Uh, meanwhile, speaking of what's happening abroad, we're also going to talk about the situation uh, in Myanmar. Obviously, a lot of concern about what's uh, unfolding there. We'll talk about that tomorrow. Also, Australia taking on Facebook. It's not going so well at the moment. Uh, but it's still an approach that Canada seems intent on emulating. We'll get into that coming up on the program tomorrow as well. So that'll do it for us here this afternoon. Angela Cocott standing by. She'll be filling in for me uh, for the next uh, couple of weeks. I'll be filling in for, well, we don't know who, but uh, I'll be in for the next couple of weeks, including tomorrow, 930. Talk to you then. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.